Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examined from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, reality TV star and former evangelical ministry leader, Josh Duggar, is arrested on child pornography charges. The latest in the ongoing Jerry Falwell Jr. saga and news about donor-advised funds that you should know about, even if you've never heard of them before. We begin today with news that Bethany Christian Services has left the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. Yeah, Bethany Christian Services is one of the nation's largest Christian adoption and social service agencies, and it's voluntarily resigned its membership with the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, better known as the ECFA. Bethany's been a member of the ECFA since 1987, so this is a big shift for the organization. Yeah, it is, and it's not the only shift the organization has made in recent years. Bethany recently decided that it would place children for adoption with same-sex couples, a decision that frustrated many of its evangelical donors. So, in early March, the ECFA began communicating with Bethany Christian Services leadership to better understand understand how that decision would impact uh, Bethany's membership and compliance with ECFA standards. And it was during this review process that Bethany chose to voluntarily resign its membership in the ECFA. The first standard for ECFA membership is that the organization has to have a written statement of faith clearly affirming a commitment to evangelical Christian faith or shall otherwise demonstrate such commitment and shall operate in accordance with biblical truths and practices. Warren, our next story involves donor-advised funds. First, can you explain what a donor-advised fund is? Well, yeah, I think so. A donor-advised fund is a tool that donors, especially high-capacity donors, in other words, donors that are giving away a lot of money, can use to help them manage their philanthropy and manage their taxable income. So let's imagine, for example, that you've owned stock or a business or maybe a piece of property for many years. Now, for whatever reason, it's time to sell. Uh, Or maybe you get an unexpected bonus from your employer. Uh, It's possible that you'll have to pay a significant tax bill on that. However, if you give away all or a significant portion of those funds in the same year that you receive them, that can have a pretty serious impact. In fact, it can offset that tax burden. That makes sense. But that means I'm going to give away a lot more money than usual for one year only. But what if I don't know who I want to give all that money to? Or what if I want to spread it out over several years? Well, that's a great question, and it's exactly where a donor-advised fund can come in handy. You can give the money to a donor-advised fund that is managed by an accredited fund manager, and the law says that you can take the full tax deduction when you put that money in the donor-advised fund. Then you can spread out your giving over many years, or you can at least not have to give it all in the current year. 
So it sounds like the donor advised fund is a good thing. Well, in general, I think donor advised funds are good things. They give donors the time to make informed giving decisions without the pressure of that December 31 deadline every year. They also allow for more efficient giving and tax planning if your income fluctuates significantly from year to year. I should be clear, too, that here at Ministry Watch, we've been the recipient of many gifts from donor advised funds. So in that regard, yeah, we like them a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But there is a downside. Well, there is. And that downside is that it's tempting to put the money away in a donor advised fund and then just let it sit there. In fact, and that's the news this week, a new study says that donor advised funds currently hold about $142 billion in assets, money that could be going directly to charities. Now, fans of donor-advised funds say that this money will eventually go to charities, and they also say that donor-advised funds have increased giving. So if some of the money is temporarily parked in a donor-advised fund, then that's a small price to pay for all the good that donor-advised funds do. And that's where this new study comes in. Uh, they It's from Boston College Law School's Forum on Philanthropy and the Public Good. And what this study says is that the money going to charities, in fact, has not increased for about 30 years or so. That's the period of time that was studied and the period of time that donor-advised funds have been popular. To add to the complexity, foundations have also grown dramatically in the past few years, 600% over the 30 years studied uh, by this particular research. Foundations now, they do have to give away 5% of their assets annually, but, and here's another wrinkle, some foundations are giving their money to donor-advised funds. And the donor-advised funds, in some cases, are reinvesting that money in other foundations. So again, further delaying when the money actually goes to charity. So is there a solution to the problem? Well, there is, and it's actually a pretty simple solution, but just because it's simple doesn't mean that it will be easy to make happen. Simply requiring donor-advised funds to distribute money over a period of time, like five years or 10 years, would cause a lot of this problem to go away. Current laws don't, in fact, require donor-advised funds to distribute any money to charity in a particular year. And you can increase the percentage that foundations must give away annually from 5% to something, well, I don't know, pick a number, something greater than 5%. Well, that sounds pretty simple. So what's holding it up? Well, the people holding the money don't want to let it go. Foundations and donor-advised fund managers often get paid a percentage of the assets that they have under management. Now, that number is typically a very, very small percentage, usually less than 1%, but a drop in the assets under management means a commensurate drop in income for the people who are managing the money, and they're going to resist that. Warren, let's look at one more story before we go to break, and that's the story of a church in North Carolina that got pressed into service doing something it never thought it would. Yeah, you may have heard the story of the terrible mass shooting that took place last Sunday in Boone, North Carolina. Yeah, five people were killed, including two deputy sheriffs. 
Yeah, that's right. That's a story. But a part of the story that has not been as well reported was the fact that Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Boone, North Carolina, uh, played an important role. Uh, They served as a staging ground for the police and medical personnel. And um, they also became the spot where an impromptu house of mourning for the community kind of sprang up. It was a community, of course, reeling after this lengthy standoff. Mount Vernon senior pastor Todd Houston called it one of the most tragic events the high country has ever seen. Boone is in the mountains of North Carolina. Uh, Locally, they call it the high country. He invited the church congregation and community members to join together in mourning on Sunday. And in fact, it turned into a community-wide gathering. Many did, in fact, come. He preached a sermon from the book of Habakkuk, which is a book that covers the importance of faith in times of crisis. Mount Vernon associate pastor Eric Henderson referred to the church as a spiritual hospital, saying that this is where people go when they're hurting. I should also add that other ministries responded with support as well. Charlotte-based Billy Graham Rapid Response Team sent crisis-trained chaplains and a mobile ministry center to Boone. Edward Graham, who is the youngest son of Samaritan's Purse CEO, Franklin Graham, also joined the crisis team to meet with law enforcement officers. But uh, the event was still tough to take for Watauga County, this kind of semi-rural county in North Carolina, which until then had been one of the safest counties in the state. Warren, we need to take a break, but when we return, reality TV star Josh Duggar is in the news again, and we'll explain why. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, let's continue with the story of former reality star, Josh Duggar. Yeah, he's the former one of the stars of 19 Kids and Counting, and he was indicted on charges of receiving and possessing child pornography, according to multiple news reports. A federal grand jury in the Western District of Arkansas alleged that Duggar knowingly received images of children under the age of 12. Uh, The former star had been charged on two counts pertaining to child pornography. According to a press release from the U.S. Attorney's Office, Duggar could face up to 20 years in prison and fines of up to $250,000 on each count. 
Duggar allegedly possessed this material, some of which depicts the sexual abuse of children, the press release said. The case is being prosecuted in part by a national Project Safe Childhood Initiative, which is a program that was started in 2006 by the Department of Justice to protect children from sexual exploitation and abuse. What happens next? Well, Duggar was released on bond, but the judge said that she almost didn't release him. She said that the evidence that the that the federal authorities had was compelling and disturbing, and she placed a lot of conditions on his release, including a large bond. But it could take a couple of months before the case comes to trial, assuming there's not some sort of a plea deal sooner. Well, we unfortunately have another story of sexual abuse to report next. Yeah, two former youth workers at independent Baptist churches are now facing prison time after engaging in sex with young people at the churches they served. Jeffrey Forrest is one of those pastors, and his path to justice was a pretty long one. He served as a youth worker at various churches. He worked at a daycare operated by uh, Pioneer Drive Baptist Church, which is in Abilene, Texas. He allegedly had a multi-year sexual relationship with at least four students between the ages of 8 and 15 back in the 90s. Initially, local officials questioned the charges against him, but one victim reemerged after receiving counseling that surfaced from the past abuse. And Forrest had, in fact, skipped out on a 2016 court date and fled to Mexico, which led U.S. Marshals to declare him one of the 15 most wanted fugitives in America last spring. And in fact, his story was featured in a program on the Investigation Discovery cable channel. In April, he was found guilty of two counts of aggravated sexual assault of a child and sentenced to 99 years in prison. And the other one? Well, the other one is a former Illinois youth pastor. His name is Roger Van Raden. He pleaded guilty after he was accused of having sex with a teenager who was also a member of his congregation. In April, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Uh, For four years, Van Raden had repeatedly had sex with this teen girl uh, that was in his youth group. Uh, Some of the encounters actually happened at the church. Uh, After the victim came forward, he confessed to a sheriff's investigator, and and he said he knew it was wrong. was fired from his position and banned from the congregation. Prosecutors had argued for a 23-year sentence. Warren, before we move on, I have to ask you, do you ever get discouraged writing this kind of stories that we've just covered? I mean, they are horrible stories of sexual abuse and often abuse to teenagers. Yeah, well, I first of all certainly agree that they are horrible stories and they are tough to talk about and tough to write about. Uh, you're not the first person that has to get discouraged whenever we tell some of these stories about sordid topics and other topics that we have to cover here on Ministry Watch. Or they sometimes say, do you really have to cover that stuff? But I think it may surprise at least some of our listeners when I tell them that I think the answer to that question is, yes, I think it really is important that we cover this stuff. And no, I don't get discouraged. I don't get discouraged because I believe the Bible when it says that the truth will set you free. 
telling the truth, even if it is a truth that is difficult to hear, truth about our own sin is a first, and I should add, an essential step uh, towards getting set free from that sin. Uh, It's the first step towards repentance and restoration. And of course, here at Ministry Watch, that's our goal is restoration, not merely to expose problems, but to learn from them for those of us who are not directly involved in the situation, but to encourage reconciliation and restoration for those who are. So I do appreciate the question because it's important that we don't become infatuated with these kinds of stories. Uh, We need to learn from them, though, but not because they give us any pleasure at all. Yeah, that's good to know. Thank you for sharing. Now, Warren, next up is an update on the Jerry Falwell Jr. saga. Yeah, that's right. And I think the title to this chapter in the story should be The Party's Over. Uh, Former Liberty University uh, President Jerry Falwell Jr. made a surprise appearance at a student event last weekend. He took the stage, uh, kind of sort of commandeered the stage and took over the microphone and announced that he was going to have a graduation party at his farm this coming weekend. It was a bizarre event that went viral on social media. Yeah, it really was a very strange event. I've seen a couple of videos of it myself, and um, you know, it's kind of hard to, to understand what's going on there. Uh, but now Falwell has reportedly canceled the graduation party after he reportedly has been hospitalized for testing related to blood clots in his lungs that he was originally diagnosed with last year. Falwell said in the statement canceling the party that it was a major disappointment to us since we wanted to celebrate the success of graduating students and show them our appreciation. Uh, To them, our entire family extends our sincere congratulations and fond farewell. Well, Warren, we're going to take another quick break here, but when we return our weekly lightning round of ministry news, I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Warren, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round for shorter news briefs. What is up first. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court recently heard oral arguments in a key donor disclosure case that's made its way through the California courts during the past decade. We reported on those oral arguments last week, but what I wanted to add today is that the issue of donor disclosure isn't going away anytime soon and has been popping up at the state level this year. At least 10 states have in the past year considered laws related to donor disclosure, though we should say that some of those laws, including the one that uh, they're looking 
looking at in the legislature here in North Carolina, where I live, would prevent donor disclosure. The California law requires donor disclosure. And who is in the ministry spotlight this week? Well, it's an organization called the Samaritan Women. It's a group that began in 2013 focusing on providing restorative care to survivors of uh, sex trafficking and trying to bring it in to domestic human trafficking through awareness, prevention, and advocacy. The organization operates transitional and restorative shelter programs for women who are recovering from human trafficking situations. The, the program's emphasis is on life building, personal accomplishments, social reinforcement, entry and spiritual uh, renewal and reconciliation as well. The aim of the Samaritan women is to inspire people both inside and outside the church to combat human trafficking through awareness, prevention, service, and advocacy. And since 2013, the organization has grown. It now has a budget of more than $2 million a year. And by the way, our coverage of the Samaritan women is just a part of our ongoing coverage of the sex trafficking industry. And of course, we have a new edition of the Ministries Making a Difference column. Who's in it this week? Well, first up, Nazarene General Hospital is in New Guinea. It's been forced to think creatively about how to meet the growing demands of patients suffering from COVID-19. Since the beginning of March, they've extended their capacity from five beds to 30 beds, along with help from Christians here in the United States and around the world. I also want to single out the Billy Graham Rapid Response Team. I mentioned them briefly earlier when we were talking about that shooting story up in Boone, North Carolina. They deployed their 18th crisis-trained chaplain team to Boone to respond to that very situation. And the Immigration Coalition in April raised enough funds to dig and equip a well of safe drinking water in El Salvador. They began plumbing last week, and the well will provide uh, water for 12 communities, 780 families, 3,900 people total. It's a Christian nonprofit organization, the, the Immigration Coalition. And what they're trying to do is to deal with some of the issues in these Central American countries that are keeping um, people from being able to stay there safely. That's one of the reasons that this immigration problem that we're seeing on our southern border is so pressing right now. Well, this is the first conversation that we've had this month, and uh, that means that we have a couple of new monthly lists. Yeah, we uh, publish uh, two lists every month. Uh, one is our list of the top 10 stories of the previous month, in this case, April. Topping that list is Todd Wagner's departure from Watermark Church in Dallas. And uh, a new story that we did on Gospel for Asia is our number two story. You can see the entire list by going, of course, to the Ministry Watch website. And your other list? Well, the other list is our monthly list of ministries curated from our uh, Ministry Watch database, which has more than 850 ministries in it. Uh, Ministry Watch, as, uh, as many of our listeners, of course, know, stands for transparency and accountability. That's why we think it's important for Christian ministries to be as transparent as possible with donors and with the public. This month, we have published a list of ministries that kind of flunk our transparency grade. These are ministries that get an F. They don't release their Form 990s to the public. They're not members of the ECFA. They don't release their audited financial statements to the public. You can see those 20 ministries by, again, going to the Ministry Watch website. Warren, we need to bring this to a close. Any program notes before we go? 
Yeah, I do. Uh, I wanted to remind everybody that um, our book of the month is Mission Drift. It's a classic book about how to keep Christian ministries from drifting away from their core missions. In other words, the difference between a mission true and a mission drifting organization. Uh, It's a great book. Uh, I've benefited from this book uh, many times over the years. We're delighted to give it away for a gift of any size. You'll receive a copy of that book just to go to the ministrywatch.com website and hit the donate button at the top of the page. I also wanted to remind um, our listeners that one of the authors of that book, Peter Greer, is going to be my guest on a live webinar on uh, May the 12th at 3 o'clock. It's free, but you do have to register. You can find a registration link in my daily Ministry Watch emails. And finally, I want to thank those of you who have purchased the book Faith-Based Fraud this week. We have had our our debut of the book, uh, I guess you could say a launch day for Faith-Based Fraud, and it debuted at number one on several Amazon categories. If you don't have a copy of the book, you can go to Amazon or your favorite online retailer and get your copy today. And after you've read it, please write a review. The more reviews we get, the better the book performs in our search algorithms. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Rod Pitzer, Mark Herwana, Emily Miller, Steve Raby, Ann Stike, Shannon Cuthrill, and Kim Roberts. Thank you to our friends at Nonprofit Times for contributing materials to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you. 